Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm your host, Michael Benner, and today we're going to do a special tribute. A few weeks ago, just a little before Christmas 2019, we lost a really great spiritual teacher, Baba Ram Das, often known as Ram Das, and uh, in a previous life, Dr. Richard Alpert, a quite famous and infamous Harvard psychologist who uh, got run out of the university along with uh, his uh, co-worker in the psychology department, Dr. Timothy Leary, for their experimentation with human consciousness through psilocybin and later LSD and other psychedelic chemicals. I'm going to tell you a little about Ram Das because uh, he died at the age of 88, having 22 years earlier had a near-fatal stroke. And uh, while it was disastrous, he came to see it as a kind of grace, really a blessing in disguise. And uh, he literally had to learn to speak over again often had trouble finding the right words, but it was all about a motor reflex. It was not that he didn't have the awareness. The irony is it sort of replicates the psychedelic experience in which LSD or psilocybin, mescaline, other natural and organic psychoactive drugs will confound logic and reasoning. The psychedelic experience mimics schizophrenia. And so you have a distinct feeling of being crazy. <laughs> you know you're insane when you do a decent-sized hit of any of these psychedelic drugs. But what's curious about it is that your awareness expands. You become hyper-aware. Higher consciousness or expanded awareness is just a phrase until you experience it. It's an elevated perspective, a kind of clarity that stands above the insanity of the thinking and the confusion of how you feel and and the way you may behave. So you can be hallucinating, and yet it creates a sense that all of life is a hallucination, pretty much a projection. And yet, as the story goes, after Dr. Alpert and Dr. Leary were dismissed from Harvard's psychology department, they moved to the Hitchcock estate in upstate New York, known as Millbrook. This was 1963, and they began the psilocybin project, experimenting with psychedelic drugs. Uh, they had the trip to Mexico where they ate a lot of mushrooms, and then, through networking, really got a hold of some very high-quality, laboratory-quality 
uh, one could say medicinal quality LSD, and began to experiment with that. But very quickly recognized that this was an artificial entry point that after a matter of hours, you'd crash and you'd come back to Earth and lose that expanded awareness while regaining <laughs> a sense of mental sanity. And emotionally, you became more even keeled as the drug wore off. And they were looking for something more permanent as a way of raising consciousness or expanding awareness, to be more lucid, to create the kind of overarching clarity that they had experienced on these psychoactive chemicals. It was much later that brain researchers found receptor sites in the brain for these psychoactive chemicals and wondered at the nature of human evolution that we would have in our brains receptor sites that were designed to allow the psychoactive chemical molecule to attach itself. And why would that be unless the brain was producing naturally and normally some sort of psychoactive or psychedelic chemical? And this led to the discovery of a whole field of neurotransmitters, uh, serotonin, uh, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins, and other chemicals that actually brighten the brain and allow for a more effective transmission of information across the synapse. For as you may know, brain cells are not really plugged in together. They don't touch each other. There's a small gap between the neurons called a synapse. And so the brain fluid, the chemical, the liquid that the brain and spinal cord sit in is a conductive liquid. And the presence of these psychoactive chemicals, whether it's natural serotonin and, and dopamine and, and a handful of others, or something introduced from the plant world, like um, mescaline, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, it didn't matter in terms of lowering the resistance or enhancing the efficacy of the transmission of these electrical impulses in the brain. It was a few years later, in 1967, that doctors Alpert and Leary attended a human being in San Francisco. It was January of 1967, in many ways the uh, precursor to the Summer of Love later that year. About 20,000 people attended this event in the Golden Gate Park, and it featured not only speakers like Alpert and Leary, but uh, beat poets, 
like uh, Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg. Uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti was there. And also rock bands. Uh, Janis Joplin, the Jefferson Airplane, Quicksilver Messenger Service, local San Francisco area bands, the Grateful Dead, and so on. And the idea of a human being was, of course, taken from the civil rights movement and the sit-in as a form of nonviolent protest. And the whole idea was to object to, to protest the outlawing of LSD in the state of California. And you can go online on the internet and read numerous accounts of the San Francisco Golden Gate Park Bean in January of 1967. Very few of them mention the connection to LSD. But that was the primary reason back then for holding this event. And of course, the Summer of Love followed a whole migration of young hippies, baby boomers. You have to remember, half of the United States was under the age of 25 back then. It was a counterculture that was emerging to support civil rights, to oppose the war in Vietnam, to support feminism or women's liberation, as it was called, and, of course, ecology. The very first college classes in environmental degradation and the ecosystem and ecology came about in the late 60s and early 1970s. So, informed by the lyrics of underground rock and roll and the underground radio that was emerging at that time on the FM, <laughs> I mean, at the time, FM was that funny radio band with the red light. It was stereo, but it was pretty much elevator music, or we called it dentist office music. And uh, it was, again, the late 60s when in cities like San Francisco and Detroit, underground radio stations popped up that were playing deep album cuts and uh, progressive or so-called underground radio was born. So the lyrics of those songs, along with counterculture newspapers and books, really fed the counterculture revolution and the, uh, the movements that I just mentioned, the anti-war movement, civil rights, women's rights, ecology, anti-nuke as well as anti-war, anti-Vietnam. We saw it as all part of one thing. Anti-establishment, anti-corruption, anti-materialism. And the role of LSD and psilocybin and mescaline and, of course, marijuana, uh, cannabis, in expanding awareness and putting people in touch with values that we really hadn't been exposed to, like kindness. I was never taught kindness. I was not taught to be kind. 
even in my supposed religious upbringing. It was about being a sinner and a bad person, and and uh, Eve ate the apple, so that made you born bad. You had original sin, and you were a disgusting, sinful creature in need of redemption and refinement. Well, we could all benefit from some redemption and refinement, but we're not bad. We're wonderful. We're magnificent. We're in the image of the Creator. And we have this loving nature. You know, if you see a uh, wounded animal by the side of the road, your impulse is to stop and help the animal, much less, you know, help a child or uh, an old person who's having a problem. But even if somebody doesn't deserve it, somebody's being mean and nasty and hurtful to have enough compassion to recognize their suffering and not take it so personally and have compassion for them. There was something about psychedelic drugs that brought that out, that softened the human being and put him and her in touch with their spiritual nature. Kindness is a big part of that. Compassion. Empathy, and the whole idea of uh, of service, karma yoga, which uh, Dr. Alpert was very, very much interested in promoting. So a few months after the human being in San Francisco, January of 67, actually it was, uh, just to put this in context, if you're old enough to remember, it was June of that year that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album came out. That was an en- <laughs> that, that 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 created just enormous impact, fomented uh, so much change. People were just blown away by the impact of that LP. And soon thereafter, Dr. Alpert went to India in search of a lasting form of spiritual advancement, a way of raising consciousness or expanding awareness that wouldn't wear off after 12 or 15 hours. And he met a guru, gave him an enormous amount of LSD that he had brought with him, from the States, and the guru was completely unaffected. I mean, Dr. Alpert gave him enough LSD to, like, trip out a herd of elephants. And uh, LSD was measured in micrograms, and this was a milligram dose. This was an enormous amount of acid. And the guru just sat there completely unaffected, meaning he had such control of his consciousness, of of his awareness, which, as I explained a minute ago, is overarching and stands above thought, emotional feeling, behavior, and our perception of the world. Our awareness, 
of our thoughts, our awareness of our emotions, our understanding of knowledge transcends knowledge, thought, feeling, behavior, perception of the world, don't you see? There's a, a great quote by Albert Einstein. He said, any fool can know things. The secret is to understand them. And that's one way of thinking about the way in which awareness transcends, awareness or consciousness transcends thought, feeling, behavior, and perception of the world. And so Dr. Alpert studied with this guru. The guru gave him the name Baba Ramdas. And uh, from that point on, Dr. Richard Alpert was known, well, initially when he returned to the States, he was Baba Ramdas. In 1971, he released his most seminal book, Be Here Now. It really transformed a whole generation of uh, counterculture hippies and intellectuals, spiritual seekers. And after that, just Ramdas. So Dr. Richard Alpert became Baba Ramdas, and then by the mid 70s, just Ramdas. And he wrote a dozen other books. And as I say, he had a. Uh, severe stroke in 1997 and it took him years to recover his ability to speak and move about. In 2004, he moved to Maui, lived on the north shore of Maui, Hawaii. And he never left the island until he passed away just a few weeks ago, a little before Christmas. 2019, at the age of 88 years old. But I guess I just want to, particularly for the benefit of younger people who are not part of the baby boomer generation, but were born in the 80s or 90s or since, what an impact this man had on Western culture. There are few to compare him to. Alan Watts comes to mind. And one of the reasons I think of Ram Dass and Alan Watts together is their eclectic nature when it comes to spirituality. Ram Dass initially thought of himself as a Buddhist. And he didn't really like Hinduism. But the guru that named him was a Hindu guru. And so he came to appreciate Hinduism, even though he was a little put off by the polytheistic nature of so many gods, goddesses, and deities. And Hinduism, I must say, is not that unique from Christianity in one sense, and 
that's that there are just so many forms of it. You know, initially, the Christian was a Catholic. And then in the Renaissance era, there was a Reformation. And Protestants, or Protestants, broke off as Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and hundreds and hundreds of other variations on the Christian theme. Well, Hinduism is really a British reference to a culture more than a religion. Before India was known as India in the West, it was called Hindustan. And so Hinduism is really a reference to the spiritual culture of that part of the world and is comprised of, again, hundreds of variations on a theme based on the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Upanishads, the Vedas, and other ancient holy books. Indeed, the whole field of yoga is more philosophy than religion. Buddhism is more psychology than religion. There's no reference to God anywhere in Buddhism. So Ramdas was very interested in Buddhism, uh, later in the many forms of Hinduism as well. He also studied Sufism, which is the mysticism of Islam. And because he was born Jewish in Boston, his parents were both Jewish. He, in his latter years, last couple of decades of his life, began to study Judaism more deeply to get a better sense of that. And uh, one of his contemporaries back at Harvard in Millbrook, a gentleman named Houston Smith, to this day practices five religions every day. So, the idea that you have to choose one religion, or any religion, I mean, the problem with organized religion appears to be the word organized, not, not the word religion. Uh, organized religion becomes institutionalized, institutions seek power and become corrupted. And yet the argument is, well, if you're not going to pursue what other people think, religion, but some sort of mysticism based on your own personal experience, then spirituality is whatever you make of it. Well, yeah, <laughs> as a matter of fact, yeah. And since every one of us is unique, we have fingerprint evidence, and DNA proof of our uniqueness, why wouldn't we seek our own path? And maybe all those paths lead to the same mountaintop, and my path might be more circuitous than yours. You may be on a more direct path than I, but maybe not. 
The journey is what it's about, the adventure. And who knows? Maybe the fact that uh, my path is not so direct is in my interest. But we need to learn to trust our own experience, and the new world religion is not really going to be organized other than it appears that it's going to be based in large part on a blend of truly ancient mysticism, the so-called wisdom traditions or the ageless wisdom. That's what this podcast is called, the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Blending the wisdom traditions from time out of mind with quantum physics. For we're all arriving at the same understanding. The term, unfortunately, is a bit unwieldy, panpsychism. But it's the idea that everything has a mind. All things, from the most elevated human consciousness, the intellectual awareness of whales and dolphins and octopi, is that octopuses, octopi, and other truly brilliant, intellectually aware creatures, all the way down to the mineral kingdom. Other animals, the plant kingdom is aware, it responds to its environment. The mineral kingdom doesn't seem to respond to its environment, but it does. There's weather, there's mountain building, there's erosion, there's chemical reaction, right down to the most elemental quanta, the subatomic particle, the electron, the proton, neutron, the, uh, the quarks, and the mysterious subatomic particles have awareness. You, you might find that shocking. You can Google the double slit experiment, the famous, infamous double slit experiment that proves that electrons act like particles when they're observed, but they act like energy when they're not under observation. So the particle is aware of itself. It can be in more than one place at a time. It can be entangled with another particle, have a relationship with another particle at enormous distances, thousands of light years, as if connected outside of space and time. But we cannot, according to the quantum scientist, separate our observation and perception of reality from the formation of that reality. So life is a projection. Life is what you make it, <laughs> literally. Ramdas knew this because at heart he was a mystic. He studied all the religions. And he brought that to us in the West.
like Alan Watts, this great eclectic view of the heart of spirituality, which is love. And what is love but the realization that there's only one of us here? That everything that exists is immersed in an ocean of wholeness, a unified experience of love, eternal, infinite, and aware. And so that's our tribute to Baba Ram Das, to Dr. Richard Alpert, who spent much of his life working with dying people and spoke quite eloquently about his own journey toward death and saw it, and I'm sure sees it, as a great transition, a great adventure, certainly nothing to be afraid of. Baba Ram Das, the author of Be Here Now and a dozen other books, a fellow who taught us about loving awareness, love, aware, awareness is love, love is awareness. Thanks for joining us for this little tribute and for subscribing to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner. I do private counseling and training and always offer a free intake session by telephone or Skype. So all you have to do is go to my primary website, michaelbenner.com. There's a big red button right in the middle with a kind of a fireworks display behind it. Click on that. You'll be able to access my online calendar. And from the times that are available, you can book yourself. And then you'll be given a confirmation email, a reminder the day before our meeting. You'll be given the telephone number to call. And uh, we'll chat for 30 minutes or so. See. Uh, how you think I might be able to help you, and I'll tell you what I think I might be able to do for you. One of the most enjoyable things I do. There's no obligation to follow up with formal sessions. Many people do, some don't. But why don't you set it up anyway? Give me a call, see what's going on. Often in 10 or 15 minutes, I can set you straight, get your feet back on the path give you a couple of tips, tell you how to trust your intuition, how to sort of set aside that mind-numbing logic that is so negative and so full of worry and fear. And if you've yet to read my book, Fearless Intelligence is available wherever books are sold. The full title, Fearless Intelligence the Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. At Amazon, all online booksellers, brick-and-mortar stores can order it for you. Ebook version is available. Fearless Intelligence. And if you get a chance to drop a review on Amazon, boy, that really helps boost our visibility and keyword searches. We appreciate that.
So happy new year, happy 2020, and thanks for being with us. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Palm Springs, California, this is Michael Benner. So long.